Father in heaven, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you for the opportunity that your word presents every time to be drawn closer to you, Lord. I just want to take a moment to pray and ask, Lord, that uh, I... Uh, the words that I share would be your words, Lord, and not mine, and that, Father, you'd be glorified. And I pray, God, that we would all be drawn closer to you, Father, that uh, your name uh, would be lifted, and that, Father, you'd just be glorified in and through everything that's said. And uh, help us, Lord, once again to walk away closer to you than when we came in. May we be radically changed and affected by the things that are shared. And uh, Lord, just may you be glorified. So Lord, we love you and we thank you. Go before us now as we jump into this great passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we jump back into the seven letters to the seven churches. And we're talking once again about seven very specific churches in Asia Minor that these were written to. They were written for some very important reasons. And I've talked about these three important reasons every single time we've gotten together and I'm going to hammer them in your head because it's important. They should be hammered in your head. The first of the three important reasons why these, this, these letters are so important. Of course, these are letters that Christ wrote to the churches as he handed them to the pastor of the church. Thus, the message would be given by the pastor to the church. And so the first of the reasons is because there were very practical issues that each of these churches were going through. And so each and every single one of them were dealing with something different. There were different things they were facing, different circumstances that they were all looking at. And so all of these uh, lessons that were being learned, rebukes, encouragements, all of these things are very, very valuable for us to draw from. Very valuable. And so, of course, we're, uh, we can draw a lot from that. Very, very exciting. As you uh, look at that and you examine it, the second of these reasons why it's so valuable is, of course, because they represent different types periods, right? In the church age. For example, the church that we went over last week, that church represented the period of the uh, Reformation. And we talked about this, right? The, and, and of course, a very, very, very interesting period in church history. And, uh, and so each and every single one of these churches represent a certain time in what I would call the church age. Thus, this is the reason why this series has been dubbed the church age. Philadelphia, for example, covers the modern day church. It really does deal with many of the things going on in the modern day church. Um, of course, the modern day real church. How about we put it that way? The modern day real church. Okay. And so that's the second reason why th this uh, letter is important or these letters are important. The third reason is because these letters speak directly to us. They're a letter written from Jesus Christ to us personally, not just a corporate group, but it's a letter that's written exactly directly personally to me and you. How do we know? know that because at the end of each and every single one of these letters he says what he says he who has a what ear. let him ear. and guess what we've got two ears okay so we need to be listening to what the Lord has to say in these letters and they're important they're direct to us and they are very 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 powerful letters as they deal with you know a lot of very critical things going on so Jumping into verse 7, we're going to talk about the church in Philadelphia. A little brief summary on the church in Philadelphia. Actually, not the church, but the actual city of Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia is a city that doesn't exist anymore. I forgot to mention that to first service. Um, it was sort of abolished by the Turks in roughly 1300. And uh, many of these uh, churches or cities don't really exist anymore into the modern day. Sardis, of course, is a church and a city that still does exist. 
exist, which is interesting. Uh, the modern day versions of these cities do exist. Philadelphia, there is no real modern day version other than geographically speaking, I can point to you where in Asia Minor Philadelphia would be. Philadelphia was a filthy rich city, okay? And a lot of these cities were really rich cities. Philadelphia was certainly one. Philadelphia means brotherly love, right? And, um, and, and it is interesting that it would be deemed that because the church in Philadelphia really does meet that sort of category or the name of the city. But the city itself was really rich. And the reason why it was rich was because it was a gateway that connected the continent of uh, Asia Minor to the other surrounding continent. And what's interesting about the trade that went through that city was it made the city so incredibly popular. And of course, like I said, it made it an extremely wealthy city. Now, all things considered, it was really considered to be a mini Athens. That's what they called it. It was so, so big of a city or so rich of a city and powerful and, and it had so much notoriety that it was deemed a mini Athens and there was no other city that was called that. And so all that appropriate to mention because this was a very culturally relevant city. Now, when I say culturally, culturally relevant, this was the city that was believed to be the city of indoctrination for anybody who was not cultured in the ways of the Greek. So if you were a Roman and you were considered to be somebody who did not know or you just recently obtained your Roman citizenship and you were not a cultured person, Philadelphia would be the city that you were told to go to, oftentimes to live or to permanently, I mean, temporarily house yourself over there. And of course, it was the center of cultural learning. And there were lots of things that were designed for cultural uh, adaptation in this city. So with all of that said, we jump into the letter that Christ writes to the church in Philadelphia. And folks, let me tell you something. He has a lot to say. Just in the way he introduces himself here, he has a lot to say. So let's read it and we'll get right into it. It says this in verse seven, it says, now unto the angel, of course, the pastor, unto the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. Okay. There are a lot of descriptions here being given of Jesus, and we're going to talk about each one of these descriptions one by one because they are significant both individually and they are significant collectively. So let's talk about that in, on both levels. First of all, Jesus Christ refers to himself as the one that is holy. Now, we have spoken about the word holy before. Many of you know how I've described the word holy. And uh, go figure, this would be the way that I've described the word holy. I'll do it a different way than I did first service because I think it's very appropriate. Uh, I came in this morning a little groggy, a little tired. I am going on 45 minutes of sleep from last night <laughs> because we didn't get home from church until about midnight. And so... Uh, it's it, it's been a long night, so I you know when you're groggy, you tend to be a little you know just a little uh, you know you kind of get that way. Um, I was too tired to be uh, you know I was just very oh man I can't believe I got to do four services today you know that kind of a thing. And so uh, my sound guys come in and uh, CJ comes up to me and he says oh by the way James I've got a cronut. 
that I bought for you, it's set aside. And let me tell you, although CJ doesn't do this all the time, every now and again he does, and I love the cronuts that he buys because the people that buy them, I don't know, they put crack in them. I don't know what, I don't know what it is, but they're good. But it's what's interesting is, is he brings it to church. And if you don't know what a cronut, anybody knows, everybody knows what a cronut is? Okay, a cronut is a croissant donut. Okay, They're, it's delicious. You peel them by the layer. It's, oh, water's in your mouth. Go to your local donut shop and ask for a cronut, okay? Drain the donuts if you can get them. They're normally gone by, you know, the first hour of the morning. Anyway, so CJ says, James, I bought one for you. And normally when he goes and he buys them, he always sets one aside for me. And so that one has my name on it. CJ got it. It was de designated for the purpose of my consumption. By definition, that donut is referred to as holy, right? Now you're laughing and you think it's funny, but it is true. Why? Because when CJ purchased it, he purchased it with me in mind. He knew that that cronut was going to be for me and nobody else. Specifically, not Nicole, not anybody, right? For me. It's, it's okay, I, I already got it covered because when I get something like that, I just I put my hands all over it and then, she, then Nicole won't touch it, you know. But here's the thing. It is for me and nobody else, so by definition, in its purest form, that cronut is holy. Now, the Bible says that you and I have been made holy. When we receive God into our hearts, we are now holy. How is that the case? We are holy because we have been set aside with the sole purpose or for the sole purpose of worshiping God and glorifying him, serving him. We are not set aside for any other purpose. We're not set aside for uh, living for our jobs. We're not set aside to be students. We're not set aside to go make money over here, to go make money over there. We are set aside for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to glorify God with our lives. Thus, you are holy. When somebody is deemed as unholy, then that means they have chosen to walk away from that which they have been designated for. That's what holy means. So when Jesus calls himself holy, that basically means that the purpose of his function is specifically allocated to minister to you in this context. In other words, Jesus is communicating with me and you with a very, very honed in reason. He is set aside for the purpose of glorifying God the Father. And he is set aside to continue in the function in which he does to bring us closer to him. Christ has no other purpose he has no other function for that other than which God has designated. And of course, he himself, yes, is God. Now, why is it that that's an important note to bring out? It's an important note to bring out because what that means is that the communication that Christ is about to have with us is very specific and it's very intentional. There is nothing about it that is void of intent. It's very clear, it's precise, it's, it is something that has a very, 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 very intentional purpose behind it. And in other words, it is something that cannot be strayed from. 
It is literally within itself, self-contained as it was intended to be, which means if we have a holy God that's coming to us, we also have a focused God. We also have a God who's intentional. We have a God who's purposeful. We have a God that doesn't stray from the program. We have a God who planned out everything from beginning to end before we were even a thought in the mind of our parents. Pretty amazing when you think about it. Pretty powerful when you think about it. So he's holy, and then he refers to himself as he who is true. He calls himself the true person, the true one. Now, it's interesting because this really adds purpose and function to holiness. There are certain things that when they are bought together, they make the real difference. Void of them being together, oftentimes they become worthless. When they're not together, they really have no meaning or no real purpose or no real body to them. And I can give you an example of this. There's lots of concepts like this. Uh, a great example is hopefully all of you parents are trying to teach your children how to be a person of morals. That's an important principle, is it not? And then there's a lesson that you're trying to also teach your children of being a person with character or integrity. Oftentimes they're referred to as the same kind of thing, character and integrity. Well, here's the thing with it. If I'm teaching a kid to be moral and to have character, they cannot be separate from one another. And I'll give you an example of this. Your kid goes to school for the very first time. They sit together with all the kids and all the kids start making fun of one of your friends who happens to be overweight. One of your son's friends who happens to be overweight. So your kid comes home and he says, Mommy, everybody was making fun of James because he was fat. But I didn't. I didn't say a word. So praise God, young man. You've got morals. You refrained from doing that which was evil but you did not demonstrate character with that morality because if you demonstrated character with that morality, you would have spoken up to all your classmates and said, knock it off, that's wrong. You were silent and you didn't participate, but because you did not speak up, you did not necessarily exhibit the character that I'm trying to train you with. The one who has morals and character is going to see the wrongdoing, not participate in it, and then seek to address it. Take a stand for that which is right. Big difference, right? So when I have holiness, but I don't have truth, holiness is not brought into fruition. It really truly is not holy. It's got problems. Why? Because I can say, well, I'm set aside for this purpose. This is what I'm supposed to do. And I'm going to do it by any means necessary. So I can lie to do it. I can cheat. I can steal. That's not holiness. You've broken the barrier of holiness because you might recognize the fact that you've been, you've been given a mission and that you are called for a very specific designation. But if you do not carry truth into that, your designation is completely dead. It's wrong. It's learning to stand up for that which is correct through your adaptation of that which is true. So if I am a holy person and in my holiness, I choose to be true, it's an unbreakable force. 
people refer to the God of Islam, Allah, as holy. And by definition, I suppose you might be able to argue that. But when I open up the Quran and the Quran says, go ahead and cheat or go ahead and deceive because Allah deceives, he's the chief of deceivers, his holiness goes out the door, doesn't it? Because now he might be what you consider set apart for a specific purpose, which by the way, who is the chief of lies? Satan. But the point is, is you cannot have those two things put in conjunction, in contradiction of each other. So if I'm holy, being true is critically important. Because now if I'm holy and I'm true, everything that I say, everything that I do, my purpose, everything is correct. It's accurate. It is the complete picture of who God is to us. It's a beautiful picture of who God is to us. When we void ourselves of that picture, then you get the incomplete processes that I've just described. And that isn't God. God, according to the word here, he is holy and he is true. And then I want you to notice this. Look at this phrase. He refers to himself as the one that hath the key of David. What does it mean to say he's the one that hath the key of David? Well, it means he holds a key to open and close doors that will permanently open and close doors. What, why does that mean permanent when you talk about the key of David? Well, first of all, uh, what's being quoted here in Revelation is Isaiah. I think it's chapter 22. Um, he's quoting a, a prophecy concerning Christ. But more importantly, let's go back to the story of King David for just a second. If you remember King David, he's the king over all of Israel. Um, he just builds himself a beautiful palace. And he looks around and he says, man, I have a home, but God doesn't. I'm going to build him a home. And so he goes to the prophet and he tells the prophet, man, I'm going to build God a home. And the prophet says, boy, David, great idea. And he goes to bed and God, did I tell you that it was okay for David to do this? Uh, it was probably his answer in Hebrew. Uh, right. Hey, you go back and tell David he can't do it. His hands are too bloody. He's a man of war. He can't do it. You tell him that he cannot build me a home. That'll be for his son. But I am going to build him a home. What did he mean when he said, I'm going to build him a home? Well, he basically said by saying that, that David's throne would rule in perpetuity. Now, what does that mean by ruling in perpetuity when the last king that existed was right before the Babylonian empire came and destroyed the nation and there was no other king ruling from David's throne since then. Well, the Bible makes it clear that the one who comes from David's line, which is Jesus Christ the Messiah, would be the one who would rule in perpetuity over the throne of David. And so if he is the one that now rules in perpetuity over the throne of David, that means that the key that he possesses is a key of permanence. There is nobody that goes over the words of the king is there there's nobody that overrules him so when he holds the key the key to david it means that he rules with perfect authority it means that he rules with finality it means that he rules with completion and it means that whatever he rules to do is going to be permanent now what is he talking about well again this is the this is the greek language exhibiting the use of a hebrew poetic mechanism to describe something pretty powerful here okay he he's basically associating keys with open 
opened and closed doors. So what does he say? He says, Jesus is the one. He opens the door that no man can close and he closes the door that no man can open. Now, everybody loves the one that he opens the doors and nobody can close it. If God opens the door, ain't nobody gonna close it, right? And everybody believes that and everybody says, amen. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Yes. But I would sincerely hope we would get a louder amen to the idea that God closes doors that no man can open. Now, when we talk about God closing doors that no man can open, we instantly go to the negative. And the instant negative thought that we have is the story of Noah. God closes the door on the ark and tons of people perished. But did everybody ever think about the fact that when God closed the door of that ark, he was closing the door of that ark to protect his people? The people that were in it? Because if that door remained open or that door was closed and it could be opened again, you would have thousands of people attempting to enter into that ark and that ark would have capsized and they all would have died. So when God closed the door in that case, he was protecting the people that were on that ark. Now think about how powerful of a, of a thought that that is. And if that's true, then that means in the life of a Christian, every open door is a blessing and every closed door is a blessing. So when you run into a situation where there's an open door, hey, praise God, because there's nobody that's going to close it, right? God blesses you and he, and, he, and he causes you to walk through an open door. Nobody in the world is going to close that door and you never have to worry about it. And if God blesses you and closes that door, praise God, because not only is he protecting you, but he's making a different way for you. Now, the problem is is that we look at it completely differently. See, our perspective on God's closed doors is absolutely ridiculous. It's absurd. We think about it like a kid, for example. He goes out and he spends tons of time and every last bit of his allowance, you know, and he builds himself a really cool boat that's got sails on there because it's windy and he wants to put the boat on the lake and watch the boat go by. And he, he's got this big, huge, plastic bag that he's got the boat in so he pulls the boat out of the plastic bag he goes to the lake and what happens instantly because of the wind the boat capsizes it goes under the water now he can do one of two things he can go oh my gosh my life is over and 20 years from now when he's having anxiety and he's on a call all all kinds of medication the psychiatrist says it went back to the day your boat capsized right that happens a lot it does or that kid can say well, I've got my bag over here. I could grab some sticks from the tree. Looks like the wind is more suited for flying a kite. And he builds a kite and flies the kite and has fun, right? See, if we were to look at it like the kid in the second scenario, we would recognize that every closed door that God puts in our lives is a closed door designed to bless us in so many ways you can't even begin to imagine. And I could tell you story after story after story after story of times where I have gotten horrifically disappointing news where I was just so bummed and I thought, man, what a bummer, what a shame, I'm behind. This is so bad, this is so ugly, this is so awful. And yet, if pray, looking back on it now, Praise God, God had closed that door. Praise God. You know, there were two times in my life before I had met Nicole where I was praying about whether or not God had wanted me to marry somebody. Both of them in my younger years, when I was uh, 18, 19 years old or so. And I look at my beautiful wife today and I have recently seen one of those two people and I just said, 
Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> right? I'm not trying to be disrespectful or derogatory, but I look at my wife and I'm like, God, you are so good. Thank you for closing the door. I mean, I never pursued them, but I just could sense God didn't want me to. And, you know, for me, it wasn't all that disappointing, but God reinforced for me how amazing he is for closing doors in my life. I'm so thankful that God has closed doors in my life. Every time I walk into my home, every day that I walk into my home, I thank God that he closed doors in some significant ways when we were first looking for a home before we got married. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you allowed to happen what had happened. I had a CPA that had Alzheimer's who didn't file my tax reports for years. And we had to fix it. We had to fight the IRS and deal with the credit. And we won. It was all great. Praise God. It all worked. It took forever. And it was virtually impossible. It was a miracle that it happened. But I think back, man, we can't even buy a home. We can't. Thank you, Jesus, that you did what you did. Thank you for closing the door. Thank you for shutting it. The many times where I was looking at buying a building for the church and it never worked out. Oh man, thank God that he closed those doors because my vision wasn't big enough for what God wanted to do with the church. So he's the one that opens doors that nobody can close and he shuts doors that nobody can open. And I'm, and I'm very thankful, by the way. I'm more thankful for the fact that he shuts doors that nobody can open because I have beyond a respectable hustle in me. And so the businessman in me will do everything he can to pry that door right back open, right? I'll kick it down. I'll blow it out. I'll do whatever I can. That's me. And God says, no, you won't. You'll break your legs if you try to kick it. You know, thank God for that. Thank God because he's protecting me. And when he closes doors and opens up doors for us, he guides us and he protects us. And that's an amazing picture that he draws. And it's even more amazing considering the church that he's talking to. Look what he says. He says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it. For thou, pay attention to these words, for thou hast a little strength and has kept my word and has not denied my name. So what is this open door that he opened for them? The open door that he opened for them was the ability to continue to communicate the message of the gospel. How do we know that? Because at the end of this verse, it says, you've not denied my name. You've kept my word and you've not denied my name. In other words, you've continued to communicate the heart of God, even in your most weakest state. I believe that we as the church today, the true church, the real church of Jesus Christ is in this weakened state right now. We're in a place right now where we are in such a weakened state, but yet in our weakness, we are seeking the strength of God to help us to do that which he's called us to do. Why do I say we're in a bit of a weakened state? I'll tell you why. Because we are a church that is filled with compromise. We have pastors that are more concerned about fulfilling their own needs or their own desires, their own lusts, than they are about taking care of the needs of the body. We have pastors that are more concerned about what other people are going to think about what they say. You know, one of the greatest temptations that I face as a pastor, when I counsel people on a day-to-day -day basis, I sit them down and I go over the issues that they're struggling with and we talk about things. There's a temptation that says, do not tell them the way it is. Because if you do, they're going to be mad at you and they're going to leave the church and you're never going to see them again. And every single time, that voice goes through my head I have to say get behind me Satan grab the shotgun and blow it at them both barrels why because if I love them 
I'm going to tell them the truth about what the scriptures say. You cannot see a transformed life unless somebody is changed by the truth of the word of God being spoken to them. You drive around the community today. This is no joke. Do this. It's a little experiment. Drive around the churches that are within a five-mile radius of Calvary Chapel Signal Hill, and you will find at least five of them, at least, that have a gay pride flag in front of the church. Now imagine that. We love you. We embrace you. Oh, great. You're going to be popular. Everybody's going to say you're great. They're all going to say you're the best. They're going to say, oh, what a wonderful church. Yeah, but you're all going to hell. Does that make sense? But we're not telling the truth. We are not speaking the truth. Many years ago, if you used to listen to me teach a Bible study, every now and then you would hear me make reference to the fact that no, uh, uh, politics don't, be, don't belong in the pulpit. We shouldn't be talking about political things from the pulpit. And you know what God's been showing me especially recently? Hogwash. Baloney. The things that happen in politics, they emanate from the pulpit. And if we're not talking about them and if we're not being truthful about them, how are our eyes going to be open? How are we going to learn to take a stand for righteousness? How are we not going to educate people and teach people the truth about what it's, all, what it's all about? I got beat up the other day. Some guy came at me both barrels. Eh, you, you've been talking too many nice things about the president. How dare you do that? You're supposed to be a Christian. Christians don't do things like that. Really? Okay, let's just go over this for just a second. Let's just talk about it for a minute. You don't like the morals of President Trump. Okay, amen. You don't like the fact that he's been divorced a bunch of times and remarried. Okay, amen. You don't like the fact that he has used some bad language and derogatory language towards women. Okay, Rosie O'Donnell only. Amen. Maybe not Rosie only. You know what I mean. Great. Bad guy. How about President Bush? A lot of people like him. Do you like him? Oh, sure. Moral guy? Sure. Been never divorced his wife? No. Righteous guy. Good soul to the earth guy. Okay. President Trump. Hmm. Immoral. Bad. Push. Good. Okay. President Trump. No other president in the history of the United States has eliminated funding to Planned Parenthood. Oh, well, he's a racist president. He's the least... Do you understand? Do you understand that Planned Parenthood is put in the neighborhoods of predominantly African-American and Hispanic people? The founder of Planned Parenthood said that their whole purpose was the elimination of those races through abortion? Oh, but the president's a racist. Oh, um, any other president ever walked and stood at the March for Life? Any other president ever declared the Golan Heights to be the exclusive rights to Israel? Make Israel actually recognized as the nation that it should be recognized by moving the embassy to Jerusalem? Here's a question. Every president that we've had in modern times, you want to talk about racism for a second? Let's talk where it's hot for a minute. Every president in modern times has gone 
to the African-American community or the Hispanic community and said, you are at a primary disadvantage because of white privilege and all the other things that have been done to you in the past. So we owe you money. And if you vote for me, we'll make sure you continue to be professional victims, stay in your hoods, and never become anything beyond that which we tell you to become. Let me tell you how bad it's become. Speech pathologists cannot correct somebody who is a kid from the African-American community from saying things that would not be considered proper English. So now they're raised their whole lives speaking that way. They go to a job interview, and at the job interview, when you have a rich white guy interviewing them, they hear the words being spoken to them that are not necessarily proper English, and they are discriminated against. So what's the solution? Teach the white guys all about white privilege to give the black guys a chance instead of saying no. You in the African-American community are better than that. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Your speech can be better. Your actions can be better. Your thoughts can be better. You are amongst the greatest human beings that have ever lived on this earth. If you don't believe me, talk to the Tuskegee Airmen. The greatest pilots that ever lived on the face of the earth. Can you imagine if the Tuskegee Airmen got educated? White privilege. Stay where you are. Don't do anything. You are subhuman. That's what they believed about those people. But you know what the body of Christ should be communicating? You know what Jesus Christ says? Jesus Christ says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Your race doesn't matter. Your color doesn't matter. Your background doesn't matter. Who you are doesn't matter. None of those things matter. And we've never had a president of the United States who has went as far as to say that. He's been going into these communities and these neighborhoods and saying, what do you have to lose? Come on, you're in the worst place of your life. You can get better. And as Christians, we're beating up on the guys that are teaching us to hate life, to kill babies. Do you know the front runner of the Democratic Party right now, the guy who's seeking to put Trump out of office is actually telling people that he is going to make the sex trade legal? Come on. Are you thinking about this, guys? He preaches socialism. He preaches a community. Let me tell you why socialism is so dangerous. Socialism leads to one place and one place only, communism. And if you are a communist, guess what? You are now trained to no longer depend upon the Lord. The USSR. The USSR is a great example of this. My friend Jack Hibbs recently went to the USSR. When he did a lot of work in Russia recently, he got approached by a 90-year-old little babushka that walks up to him, and she's yapping just, just aggressively, aggressively in Russian. And Jack thinks that she's uh, mocking him and putting him down and so on and so forth. And he looks around, and he gets an interpreter, and she's crying, crying, crying. She says, you know what? The last time I ever heard the name of Jesus was when I was seven years old, when the whole Marxist philosophy came in and took, completely took away the mention in the gospel of God because that's what communism does. And I've been praying my whole life, 80 years of my life, I've been praying that I would hear the message of the gospel one more time. And you coming in, I'm hearing the message of the gospel. Do we want that for the United States of America? Here's the bottom line. Pastors better get off their duffs and speak the truth and not be ashamed to speak the truth.
Can you imagine if all of the pastors in Washington that had all of these politicians going to their churches actually had enough guts instead of being so mesmerized by them to actually go to them and to say, what are you doing? You're walking straight into the gates of hell. <laughs> Watch out. One of the most just incredibly eye-opening interviews that I've seen in a long time was by Kanye West. I don't know if you saw this interview. Kanye's getting up there and he's done a few of interviews like this and he's saying, you know what blows my mind? He says, for most of my life when I was God-hating, when I was not walking with God, when I was not serving God, I was surrounded by prominent pastors and they were all so mesmerized by my stardom that they never sat me down and told me I was going to hell if I didn't repent. Think about that for a minute. It's because the church is, is, is to the point right now where they are becoming strong materialistically speaking and they're becoming powerful in terms of their, their, what they continue to, to view themselves as cultural relevance. But they're completely dead and weak in the spirit. But if we will hold fast to that which is true and stand up for the things that are righteous and speak the truth to people without being fearful of what anybody thinks or what anybody says or any of those types of things, folks, we can make a difference in the world in which we live. There's a conspiracy in this world that is designed to teach you as parents to send your kids straight to hell. Straight to hell. Best piece of advice I've ever heard or given to parents that have kids in high school. When your kid gets out of high school, you give that kid a year off. You have them find somebody in the church, in the church, that is doing the trade that they want to do or whatever it is that they want to do. And you go to them and you say, give me one year. I want one year to be by your side every day. I'm not going to charge you a dime. I just want to be by your side and learn what you do. Now, if they're, if they're in this for two months and they don't like it, fine. But if they are with that person for a year and they're faithful to it, at the end of the year, they are given a trade that most people who have been to college for six years will never know what to do with. And here's the interesting thing about that. Let me just tell you how that works. You now have already taught your kid to learn a productive life according to the will of God, not according to the will of academia. Now, if you have a kid that they feel led and they really want to be, after that they want to be a doctor or an attorney or whatever, by all, by all means, let them go. It's great. But here's my thing. I would much rather have a child who develops a solid knowledge of a trade and is going to heaven than be super rich and go to hell. One more thing to add to that whole thing. With all that said, look at the way society is driving you into telling your kids to go straight to hell. They do it in subtle ways you don't even think about. Next time you turn on the TV, look at the polls. You know what the polls will say? The polls will say, educated people, this is who they're voting for. Uneducated people, these are who these are voting for. People who went to college, vote for these people. People who went to college, vote for these people. In other words, what they're saying is, if you are part of a trade or you're doing something else that did not involve you going to a traditional college, you are a stupid person. And if you're smart, well then you go to here. When in reality, true reality says that the ingenious functionality that exists within society oftentimes comes from people who are not bound by the stupidity of academia. It's the truth. 
It's, it's just the way it is. And, and forgive me for saying this because it's sad when I have to say, forgive me for saying this. But what we need to do as pastors in the church is encourage you as parents to do what God wants you to do with your children and to teach your children to do what God wants them to do because no matter what it is that they do, education or not, they are gonna be used by God in a great way. And it's really funny too because that one guy who spends a year with that person in a trade and knows it like the back of their hand, by the time the other person finishes paying off their $300,000 school debt, you already have a house that's paid off. Now you tell me which one is stupid and which one isn't, right? I'm not trying to be difficult, and I'm not trying to be hard, but why are we listening to the lies of society? We are Christians, people. We are the body of Christ. We are the ones that are supposed to make a difference. We are the ones that are supposed to change. We are the ones that are supposed to step into society and not give a rip what other people think. Who cares? Who cares? It's what God says. Praise God, by the way, that, that, that we have the freedom to live that way. Can you imagine if I was worried about all those types of things? I'd be a miserable failure, wouldn't I? My goodness. I am the most uncharacteristically looking person in the I don't care. I just want to do what God wants me to do. Who cares what people think? This is what this church was doing, and I'm so proud of them. He says, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. In other words, there's going to come a point in time where those Jews that have denied the truth of God's word is going to bring them into an awareness of the fact that God's word is actually true. And those that continue to mock God and to put God down and to say the things that they will about God, God's going to make them wear, wear one day. Perfect example of this. We were at the uh, city hall and we were fighting this flag policy. And as we're fighting this flag policy, you had a guy who stood up. He's openly gay, openly uh, living an openly gay lifestyle. He says, I'm a pastor and Jesus wants me to live this way. Yeah. The Jesus of Satan? <laughs> no, he doesn't want you to live that way. But you continue to claim that your lifestyle is of God and you label everything else as hatred when in reality the most loving thing to do is to make you aware of the fact that you're about to die. If I'm a surgeon and I walk up to a man who I know is dying and I can fix him, I can keep him from dying, is the loving thing to tell him, dude, you look great. Go home, have fun. Is that a loving thing to do? It ain't. When I look at him, I go, bro, you probably have about two hours to live unless I tear you up right now. You're about to die. What's the more loving thing to do? Come on. Come on. It's, it's just crazy. And this philosophy it just goes, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. You know, when I was a kid, you went to go play Little League when I was a kid, there were losing teams and there were winning teams. And if you lost, you lost, right? Yeah. And you wonder why the kids today don't want to work. You wonder why the kids today don't want to be competitive. You wonder why the kids today don't want to do anything to strive for excellence because they got a trophy even if they ran their face into the ground. Look, I got my trophy. No teeth. We lost, but I got my trophy, right? Because... Because, 
because we are conditioning society to believe the ongoing lie that exists within the world today. We are conditioning them from the time that they are children. We're conditioning them. It's ridiculous, you guys. It's absolutely absurd. There is no nothing, none of the world's philosophy that we should be taking and embedding within our hearts as the church. We are different, you guys. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We are the ones who should be the trendsetters. We are the ones that people should be looking at and following. We are the ones that should be the best at our trades. We, are the, we should be the best doctors, the best lawyers, the best garbage collectors, the best warehouse owners, the best warehouse workers. The be we should be the best at everything that we do because we are trendsetters being inspired by the word of God and filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're not doing it. My prayer is that we will be like the church of Philadelphia. Look at verse 10. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptations, which shall, uh, a temptation which shall come upon all the world to try that dwell upon the earth. Okay, if you don't believe in the pre-tribulational rapture, read this verse again and again and again and again and again. If you overcome, what does he say? I'm going to take you away before the rapture happens. That's basically what he's, or before, the, before the, the tribulation happens. That's what he's talking about here. God is going to protect us. You do things God's way, you get God's protection. You rebel, you don't get any of that. You lose it's sad, but it's true. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast which thou hast that no man take thy crown. In other words, you have been given the word of God. You know, it's my prayer as your pastor that you are the best taught, the best educated, the best cared for, that when you walk out of this place, you will know the word better than anybody else. And if that is the case, then hold fast to the things that you've been taught. Do not deny the word of God in your life. Do not deny it in your heart. Hold fast to it. Take a stand for it. Watch out for it. Continue to seek God. Put God's word in the middle of everything. I wouldn't identify the person, but we had somebody in church recently that really made an impression on me. I was so blessed when we had the question and answer time with Don Stewart. This person stood up, public teacher, public school teacher, and said, how do I deal with the issue of global warming? And we knew exactly where that person was going. You want to know why? Because global warming says that the earth is going to be destroyed in 12 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, whatever they say it's going to be. The number keeps getting shorter and the number keeps getting higher. But this person, when they asked that question, already knew the word. Because the way that they imposed the question, it already implied the fact that they knew their, the word. Because in their mind, they're saying, if Genesis... If we know what happened in Genesis and we know what the Bible says about God destroying the earth again, that the next time that the earth will be, this the last time, the next time and the last time the earth is going to be destroyed, it'll be by fire. Then we don't have to worry about global warming, right? I'm not saying be belligerent and, you know, uh, you know, save the whales in my refrigerator. I'm not saying you have to be that kind of person, right? I'm not saying burn all the trees and, you know, tear everything up. But if you are so well educated in the word and you believe in the word that much, then you can very easily stand in confidence and say, no, I'm telling you right now, the earth is not blowing up due to global warming in 11 years. That might blow up from Jesus speaking one word and destroying everything, but that's not going to be global warming. I love that. See, that inspires me because it encouraged me. We have people that are in the public school system right now that are teaching kids the truth. 
that refuse to tell the lie that the satanically inspired world seeks to embed within our kid's heart. I love that. Guys, in every area of your life, hold fast to the word of God, right? Any belief that you're being taught, you go back and you check it with the word of God. What does the word of God say? What is, what is this? What, what happens here? Does God's word say this? Okay, if it does, I can't accept it, right? It's so powerful. Hold fast to the word of God. Why? Because Jesus is coming soon. He comes quickly. Look what he goes on to say. To him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. So that'll be the only time I ever get a tattoo in my life. Okay, I just tell you that right now. <laughs> but I can't wait to know what that name is going to be. I can't wait to see the new Jerusalem. And by the way, later on in Revelation, if I continue teaching through Revelation, which I'm thinking I might, if I teach through it, then when we get later on into the book of Revelation, we are going to learn about this new Jerusalem. And man, is it so cool. And by the way, we'll talk a little bit about that in Ezekiel as we're going through Ezekiel. So really, really good stuff. It's my prayer and it's my hope and it's my desire that all of you will function as the Church of Philadelphia. We might be viewed as weak because we're rare. We might even be viewed as all the words that they throw out their way, words that they can't even define. I got called a xenophobic man the other day. They didn't even know what xenophobia means. I'm sorry, you know? But the lies that continue to be told. Did you guys, by the way, catch what Mayor Bloomberg said about farmers? Did you, did you hear? He gets behind in a forum and he says, farmers are stupid, basically. He said, all you have to do is get a little bit of dirt, throw a little seed on the ground, and out comes your corn, right? Talk about the most stupid statement probably ever made in politics in the last year. And there have been some stupid statements, right? Think about that. Think about that. But guys, that's what the world wants you to think. See, the world wants those farmers to hear things like that and say, I gotta go to school and get an education. Then they go to school, get their education, and become brainwashed, like everybody else. Guys, let's hold fast. We are the church of Jesus Christ. Let's continue to pass the message on. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And by the way, a little note about the farmers. They're some of the most genius people alive right now. They're the ones that are keeping this whole world alive right now because they're feeding us and they're feeding me and I'm thankful for that. And, and the kind of things that they do in irrigation and planting seeds and all the other stuff. All you guys that are listening to me on the Midwest and the radio, we owe you a debt of gratitude because God's given you some kind of genius to do the work that you do. It's not easy, right? Stop believing the lie. Start grasping and holding to the truth. And guys, get out there and make a difference. See, Jesus said it at the very end, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Listen and hold fast to the statement because God wants to take every single person in this room and turn the world upside down. And who cares what anybody thinks? You wanna know why? Because I wanna be on the right side of history. And I know you wanna be on the right side of history too. Amen. And when the trumpets sound, and when the world hears the judgment voice of God, I want people to be able to say about you and me, you warned me, but we didn't listen. 
Thank you for loving me. Thank you for staying true. Thank you for keeping me from facing what I could have faced because you were truthful. May it be said of all of us that we will hold fast to the crown of righteousness as we keep to the word of God. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you for your goodness to us, Lord, and your graciousness and your kindness and your everlasting love that you continue to demonstrate to us, Lord. One thing is certain, you are good and you are God. And for that, Lord, we will always be grateful. And for everyone, Lord, that is here that does not know you, Lord, will you inspire them to come to know you, Lord, to, to desire you, Lord, and to really, really be earnest, Lord, about their walks with you. So go before us now, Lord. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.